Next Sunday is Easter, and then we're going to have Baptism Sunday the week after that. We're up to eight people, and two more are putting their apps in now, so we might be up to ten. Who knows? But, you know, when people want to publicly say to the world that they're going to follow the Lamb wherever He goes, we are more than happy to oblige them and make them a part of our family. Amen? Amen. Mm. Well, with all that being said... Everything that's good happening here at Grace Life, all that exciting stuff. I've entitled this sermon this morning, The Perfect Church. Imagine, imagine being part of the perfect church. One that meets every expectation of our Lord Jesus. What would it look like? I mean, does church, per, uh, perfect church start with its theology and its teaching? or its ability to be loving and accepting? How big of an emphasis would the perfect church place on living righteous and holy lives? Or how big of a focus would it put on evangelism and outreach? Would the perfect church have massive diversity filled with all different types of people from different backgrounds and different nations? Or would it prioritize generosity first? What does worship or music look like in the perfect church? What about its other programs? What does the children's program look like in a perfect church or the youth ministry? Well, I have breaking news for you this morning. It's not Grace Life. (laughs) Just in case you're wondering, we are not the perfect church. Grace Life is a wonderful place. It has my heart. But we are far from perfect. But what if I told you there is a perfect church? What if I told you there is one and we can learn from its perfection and be inspired by it as we continue to grow as a small corner of the kingdom here on Lockwood Ridge as a church? What if I told you there was something we could see and copy? There is no perfect church today. But today's passage describes exactly what a perfect church should look like. It describes what God sees, what God is building, and what we will ultimately become one day. And as we read this passage today, I want you to watch how its symbols and its images reveal the qualities of what a perfect church looks like. So John describes New Jerusalem in today's passage, and he describes it in stunning beauty that inspired his readers in their churches, and it can do the same for us today in ours. It's a long passage. It's about 19 verses or 20 verses. We're going to start in Revelation chapter 9, or chapter 21. You can, there we go. Chapter 21, starting in verse 9. Then came one of the seven angels who, uh, with the seven bowls full of the seven plagues. So we've seen this angel before, by the way, Okay. And he spoke to me saying, come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. That's the church. He carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, a jasper clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with 12 gates and at the 12 gates, 12 angels. On the gates, the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. On the east, three gates. On the north, three gates. On the south, three gates. And on the west, there were three gates. 
and the wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. The one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold. Of course it was a measuring rod of gold, right? It's not going to be like a wooden one, of course. Everything else in this thing is incredible. He has a measuring stick of gold to measure the city, its gates and its walls. The city lies four square, its length the same as its width. He measured the city with his rod, 12,000 stadia. Its length, width, and height are equal. By the way, that's about 15, uh, 1,500 miles. He measured its walls, 144 cubits by human measurement, which is also an angel's measurement. By the way, you see a lot of familiar numbers here. It's not by accident. The wall was built of jasper, while the city was pure gold like clear glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. Now, I'm not going to be able to say all these names of these jewels right, okay? So just keep that in mind. The first was jasper. The second was sapphire. The third, agate. The fourth, emerald. The fifth, onyx. The sixth, no. <laughs> carnelian. See? Oh, boy. The seventh is chrysolite. The eighth is beryl. The ninth, topaz. The, the tenth. Exactly. Okay. <laughs> the eleventh is jacinth. The twelfth, amethyst. The twelve gates were twelve pearls. Those are big pearls. Each made of a single pearl. And the street, not streets, the street, one street, of the city was pure gold like transparent glass. I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. The city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light. Its lamp is the lamp, is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk. The gates will never be shut by day. There will be no night there. They will bring, in, they will bring into it the glory and honor of the nations. Yeah, that's a pretty amazing description. But to understand what all this means, we have to understand how John's readers would have understood it. So let's look at the history of this passage. I want you to see that it's filled with familiar symbolism. First of all, you see there's a bunch of familiar numbers, right? We've already seen that. In this passage, John's readers would, would immediately recognize several significant numbers that are from the Old Testament and from early on in this same book in Revelation. The first number that stands out is this number 12. It appears frequently on its own throughout the passage and also occurs as a factor or multiple of other numbers in the description. And throughout the Old Testament, the number 12 symbolized one thing particularly. It was the completeness of God's chosen people, those whom he has called, those he loves, and those he protects. That's why you see the number 12 all over the place. It's a symbol of God's people. Examples of this in the Old Testament, there were 12 tribes of Israel. That's why some of the gates are named after the tribes of Israel. Jesus chose how many apostles? 12. Even in Revelation chapter 12, ironically, there are 12 stars on the crown of the woman. The readers would also recognize the number 144,000. We've seen that again, right? Way back in Revelation 7, we learned that there was no doubt that that was a metaphor for what we call the church in battle. That's us 
Any, anybody alive at any given time during the story of redemption who is being faithful, fighting temptation, proclaiming the gospel. It's a metaphor for the faithful followers of the Lamb in the world as they obey the Great Commission. Another significant number we see it here is the number three, which often throughout Scripture represents God's perfect presence. It also represents his perfect judgment, his perfect righteousness. That's why we have the Trinity. So those are some familiar numbers, right? So clearly these numbers would mean something to John's readers, which is he's talking about people. We also would see familiar beauty. John wants to help his readers imagine the unimaginable. We got a ringer? It's my slow jam. Not gonna do it. Not gonna do it. <laughs> no. <laughs> we can edit that out of the video, okay? So uh, <laughs> they would see this familiar beauty. John wants to help his readers imagine the unimaginable. He wants to try to some way describe for them what is really, as you can see, really undescribable. He uses symbols and objects of his Jewish audience that they would recognize as beautiful, like pure gold and these precious stones. But even all of these things, the glass, all these things, they fall short of the perfect beauty that he actually sees. But they're the best he has. It's all he has to work with. These are the greatest symbols of beauty in that time. He describes the city's shape, how it's made from pearl, pure gold, precious stones with these massive walls. And he even describes it as having clear glass. Do you understand? The only people that had clear glass in the first century were kings. John's readers would recognize the named 12 precious stones that are embedded in the four foundations of the city. These are the same stones that were embedded in the high priest breastplate or what it's called ephod the breastplate of judgment in the old testament that ephod that breastplate that the high priest would wear was symbolic of the spiritual authority that was invested in him by god to serve the people as their mediator between god and them there's just one street not streets a lot of people think i can't wait to get to heaven to walk the streets of pure gold well that's a bad interpretation of scripture it's one street of pure gold Massive walls that shine brilliantly. New Jerusalem is stunning, perfect in all its beauty, and they would recognize that. They would also see everything is arranged in a very familiar arrangement. From the arrangement of these stones and in four separate rows, three stones each, just like they were on the breastplate of the high priest, the cube shape of the city and the gates, everything in this vision is laid out and arranged in ways that John's readers would immediately recognize as very similar descriptions of the old temple. All these familiar numbers, the familiar symbols, they're all keys to John's readers of how they should interpret this description of New Jerusalem. They knew right away, John's readers did, that New Jerusalem was a metaphor for God's complete, chosen, protected, perfected people. It wasn't an actual city. So that's the history. Let's look at the spiritual, the theology side. I want to talk about unity and harmony. This description of New Jerusalem, by the way, I have to be careful because to save room in my notes... I abbreviated it New Jerusalem, NJ. I hope I don't say New Jersey on accident once because that's completely, 
has nothing to do with New Jerusalem. Okay. The description of New Jerusalem is so full of familiar symbols. John's readers knew this was much deeper than stunning architecture. So just so you understand how you should read it, think of it this way. It's like the designs and symbols that we see on the American flag, for example. The stars and the stripes and the colors, everything on our American flag has special meaning. You can Google it later. Each one means something. And when we see our flag in the right setting, despite all of our nation's flaws, it can invoke emotion, patriotism, even gratitude. That's what New Jerusalem is. It's the greatest example of, for a lack of a better term, a flag full of symbolism. So I made a list of each symbol so that you can string them all together and begin to see them as John's readers would. We're not going to spend a lot of time on these. Some of these you'll have to trust me on, but I'm going to show you what these symbols mean. Okay, the first thing I want you to see was the cube-shaped city. It's a symbol of God's perfect presence. 12,000 furlongs or stadia, 1,500 miles long, wide and high. It's his complete, perfect presence. You know, the Holy of Holies in the temple in the Old Testament was a cube. That was the inner room where what? God's perfect presence dwelled. In 1 Kings chapter 6, verses 19 to 20, here's what it says. The Holy of Holies he prepared in the innermost part of the house to set there the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. The Holy of Holies was 20 cubits long, 20 cubits wide, and 20 cubits high. Do you see this? It's a cube. I also want you to notice the number 12,000. That's 12 times 1,000. 12 being the number of God's people, and 1,000 was a literary metaphor used throughout Hebrew to describe multiplying growth. They would see this. They would understand that. Now we have the walls. What do they stand for? They are a symbol of God's sovereign protection of his people. Notice the number 144,000 shows up again, representing us, the church in battle, carrying out the Great Commission. Together, the walls symbolize the promise that Jesus made that as we were to go to take the Great Commission, the gospel to all nations, he would never leave us or forsake us in this tribulation, even to the end of the age, that he would keep his promise and preserve us. No one can pluck them out of my hand. The walls are a remembrance, a monument to what he has accomplished his protection, bringing us through the age to this perfect moment. Then we have the, the gates, the 12 gates, three on each wall. Accessibility for every people, tribe, and nation from all four corners of the earth. You see, the walls weren't designed to keep people out anymore. They were just to remember because evil's already been defeated. And all these gates named for the, each tribe of Israel, you know what it does? It beautifully connects the Old Testament followers of God with the New Testament faithful as one family. And the gates are always open. Then we see the 12 foundations. This is beautiful. John says the 12 foundations stood for the apostolic doctrinal authority. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20, here's what Paul says. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. John says these foundations are a symbol of apostolic doctrine that was taught in the first century by Jesus 
to them, and they are the foundations for the church throughout the church age. These apostolic teachings have been passed down generation to generation to us today, right now, here in this room. They are still authoritative today, no matter what anyone might tell you. Then we see the next symbol, this singular street of pure gold. It just represents one pure path to God, the gospel of Jesus. Jesus said, John 14, 6, I am the way or the road, the truth and the life. No man comes to the Father but through me. This one, one street of pure gold like glass, it is the pure path to God. It's a symbol of Jesus in the gospel. No one can come into his perfect presence without Jesus. And then the last thing I want you to see, John says, by the way, there was no temple in this city because God lives among his people, not a building. You know, old Jerusalem and the temple meant so much to Jewish people. And it was still special in their hearts, this nostalgia they had for it, for John's readers. They still said, man, those were great days, the kingdom of Solomon, when he built this temple and before Jesus came, the temple actually was the only portal between heaven and earth, between God and those who wanted to worship him. But now that temple has been destroyed because it's been done away with. It has now been replaced. There is no more need for a temple or for old Jerusalem, for that matter. New Jerusalem, the people of God, have taken the place of both of them. There's no more need for sacrifices or interceders or intermediaries. We are fully with Jesus. He is fully with us. That's some great theology. I want to talk about the personal section. I'm calling it perfection in progress. This was the sermon preview this week. Grace Life is most definitely not the perfect church, but we are most definitely being perfected. So all week, I'm just going to tell you, all week, I wanted to get more visuals up here for you because I just wanted you to get a sense of the stunningness of New Jerusalem. I sorted through hundreds of paintings or pictures or renderings of what people thought it might look like. And I really got to tell you, none of them seemed to do Jerusalem any justice. So I decided to leave them out. See, this New Jerusalem is a massive, perfectly constructed theological expression about God's sovereign plan of redemption. I'm going to say that for you again. New Jerusalem is a massive, perfectly constructed theological expression about God's sovereign plan of redemption. This breathtaking description of New Jerusalem descending from heaven is the culmination of God's mercy and of God's love. It represents each and every person God has ever chosen to redeem throughout human history. They're all of us together living with him in the new heaven and the new earth. It's the unity of every faithful Jew and every faithful Gentile from every nation, every tribe, living all in perfect harmony and righteousness together. It's the result of everything the Father has done to give to Jesus every one of his chosen redeemed. He said, all the Father has given to me, no one can pluck them out of my hand. You know what else it is? It's also a description of how God sees us, his church, right now. He sees us as perfect, faithful, redeemed, with no flaws or faults, even though we are none of those things. It's a majestic place. It's a perfect city, a place where all God's redeemed live in unity with each other 
And with our Jesus, what a beautiful picture of the day we, the people of God, are all going to be united in the full presence of our Savior Jesus. Okay, so how can we take this and have it impact you right now today or tomorrow at work? How can this be more than just some future hope? Because that's really what we want, right? Yeah, that's great, Joe, but what about tomorrow? What about today? Look what Peter says in chapter 2 of his first epistle. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house, a holy priesthood. Do you see the connection to New Jerusalem? Here's the amazing part. New Jerusalem isn't just a future dream. It's under full construction right now, today. New Jerusalem isn't being built up as a physical city. It is a spiritual one. That's what Peter teaches us. Just like the house that Peter describes as being built with living stones. We, the redeemed, are the very precious living stones God is using to build New Jerusalem. And even though we are still a tremendous work in progress, here's what's amazing. God already sees us as New Jerusalem, the perfect, complete church. It's as if, it's as if God, being the greatest general contractor ever, is in the process of building his dream house, and before it's done, he decides to move in already. Even in the process of building it, he has promised he is with us always, even to the end of the age. That's why he says, I am with you. I'll never leave you nor forsake you. Yes, my house isn't built yet, but I've already moved in. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 19 through 22. This is the last verse, the last slide of the day. I'm going to leave it up there for the rest of the sermon, but let's read it. You are no longer strangers and aliens, but fellow citizens with the saints. Go back. <laughs> Bring that. There we go. You are no longer strangers and aliens, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. Do you see that? In whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Do you see the connection to New Jerusalem? As followers of Jesus, we understand deeply the feeling of being strangers and aliens in this world, don't we? And we have this, <clears throat> as people who follow the Lamb wherever he goes, we have this supernatural, deep yearning to live as the church is described here in New Jerusalem. We want to experience complete unity with all of our brothers and sisters from throughout redemptive history. We want to enjoy together with them the unfettered access to Jesus and to our Father. I mean, this is why followers of Jesus can live with gratitude and eternal inspiration that the rest of the world just will never understand. Because we, we know that we aren't there yet. 
but we are so ready to be there, aren't we? So we are striving to live like it's here right now. So my personal journey, let me tell you about my personal journey with churches. It started when I was 13, when God first saved me, and I began to seek out the perfect church for me at different stages in my life. And I feel very fortunate because I can tell you that each church that I've worked in on staff or just been an attender, I've seen the best aspects of what New Jerusalem can offer. Sadly, I've also experienced disappointment and betrayal and hurt at every church I've ever been in. Because the perfect church doesn't exist yet. When we began Grace Life a little over six years ago, when we got together as a leadership team that was going to launch this, we aimed to embody all the positives we have experienced in every other church we'd ever been in. We also resolved that we were not going to repeat any of the negative aspects we encountered in any of those churches. We have not been able to do either one of those. <laughs> but we're trying. But despite Grace Life's many flaws and failures and challenges, I'll tell you one thing is very clear, as clear as glass. It is evident God is transforming our little church to be a beautiful suburb of New Jerusalem. <laughs> along, with, along with so many other precious, faithful churches throughout our city. And listen, it's a constant struggle. But through God's grace, I can confidently say God is building us, his people, into New Jerusalem. And why? Because it's not us building grace life. It's God who has, it's God who is, and it's God who will continue to build us into being a great part of New Jerusalem. And we know in this life, New Jerusalem is certainly not fully built yet. We are a work in progress, being perfected by God's grace and God's mercy. Yet even as God is perfecting us, he already sees us as this indescribable, unimaginable beauty called New Jerusalem. And since God has already moved in, since it's close enough to completion for him, I think we should probably go ahead and call it our home now too. What do you think? Does that sound good? I mean, listen, if the spiritual house Jesus is building is finished enough for him to live with us, why shouldn't we welcome him? We need to embrace our identity as these beautiful living stones that Jesus is using to build up his spiritual house into the perfect church. We should start picking out, excuse me if I mess this up, we should start picking out our new Jerusalem furniture now. And what does that furniture look like? It's the furniture of unity and love, generosity, compassion, faithfulness, God's word. And, you know, we can already see some of New Jerusalem's breathtaking beauty as God is building up his spiritual house. It's why I say we aren't the perfect church, but we are most definitely being perfected. So what should we do? We should rejoice in what God is building as we anticipate the day where he will reveal the final product in all of its majestic beauty. Until then, 
we should probably go ahead and live like citizens of New Jerusalem now, don't you think? By loving and serving one another and proclaiming the gospel to souls who desperately need it. Dear Jesus, we are stunned that you are building this beautiful city out of rocks like us. You're chiseling away. You're making us into precious gems and stones. You're cutting us perfectly to fit right where you need us to. You're building us up into a holy priesthood, a spiritual house that houses your perfect presence. Even as we struggle with temptation and frustration, anger, resentment, self-loathing over our own failures, somehow you still see us as New Jerusalem. It's the most stunning display of grace we can think of. So Lord, allow how you see us to be an inspiration for how we, out of gratitude, can live for you while we wait for you to finish the house you're building. And we aren't a perfect church, but we kind of take pride in the fact that we aren't a perfect church because when you perfect us, we're going to have a lot of reason to glorify your name for all eternity. We ask for these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We love you guys. See you next week for Easter Sunday.